Amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning, everyone. Please do take your seats if you're a guest of ours. My name's Craig, and uh, I get the privilege of opening uh, the scriptures uh, for you this morning. And before I do that, I better go and get my remote, because in my excitement, I forgot it. <laughs> and the queen will tell me about taking my remote tomorrow. Well, there we go. <laughs> Thanks, bud. Uh, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 147. Psalm 147. The message today is entitled, God at Work. I want to begin by saying that we're going to spend the first part of the message today setting the background for the psalm. And, and by background, I mean two things. Firstly, I mean... Um, if you want to copy the scriptures, by the way, raise your hands in the air and the ushers will give you a copy and you can follow along. You can turn to page uh, 626 in those Bibles. That's Psalm 147. The, the background here, two things. Firstly, the, the contextual background, the socio-historical context for the psalm itself. Why was this psalm written? Why is it there? Why is it written this way? The second part of this is, so What? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for our church? What does this mean for our world? And this is a real global psalm, and I believe that this psalm is hugely significant for the fate of the church over the next two decades. And so the first part of the psalm, I'm going to read it, and the first part of the psalm, I'm going to just help you understand the, the background to the psalm itself. Then the second part of this, I just want to share with you the journey that I've been on even to get here this morning, and the journey that I believe as a church and as a world will, will be on over the next two decades unless Jesus comes back. And I believe the significance of this is that we need to understand that God's work is the most powerful, not when a pastor stands on the stage, but when all of you live out your faith Monday through Friday, wherever he's placed you. God is at work, and God's work is done through your work. And the next two or three decades are all going to be about the battle of jobs, the battle for work. Now, before unpacking that, let's have a look at the psalm, Psalm 147, and let's read this psalm together, Psalm 147. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God. How pleasant and fitting to praise Him. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. The Lord sustains the humble but casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with grateful praise. Make music to our God on the harp. He covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horse, nor his delight in the legs of the warrior. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Extol the Lord Jerusalem. Praise your God, Zion. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. He sends his command to the ends of the earth. His word runs swiftly. He spreads the snow like wool and scatters the frost like ashes. He hurls down his hail like pebbles. Who can withstand his icy blast? He sends his word 
and melts them. He stirs up his breezes and the waters flow. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. Praise the Lord. Now as I read that, it's as if the psalmist, as he writes this, is going on a roll where he doesn't take a breath, and the psalm is supposed to build and build and build like a crescendo. A number of people, when it comes to some of the songs we'll sing, they think, why do they sing that chorus over the, the same time over? The idea here is of a crescendo that results in a crescendo of praise. And this is the nature of the psalm. It is a psalm of praise. It is a psalm of joy. It is a psalm of exuberance. Now, if you to understand the psalm, you need to understand three things. Firstly, Psalm 147 belongs together with Psalms 146 through 150. We say that because all of these Psalms begin with the words, praise the Lord. They end with the words, praise the Lord. That's hugely significant, isn't it? The day begins with the shouts of praise. The day is supposed to end with a shout of praise. Is that true for you this morning? Some of you will know that Pastor Lynn, uh, pastor of operations, been on staff for what, 26, 27 years? He was walking his dog yesterday afternoon. As he was walking his dog on a route he always took, a car didn't stop at a light and turned, didn't see him, killed his dog instantly, hit Pastor Lynn, he went up in the air about 10 feet, came down, he's praising God because it's only his foot that is broken. His dog died. If you know Pastor Lynn and Cheryl, they love their dogs. But even as he was communicating this with Pastor Mike and I yesterday, he was saying, praise God. That's the mark of faith, isn't it? When something happens that you can turn around and say, my life begins with praise, and no matter what happens, it ends with praise. Is that where you're at today? Can you do that? What is stopping you from uttering and entering into these words of praise. All of these psalms, they begin with praise and they end with praise, no matter the season. I'm praising God today because in September, I said to you guys, I believe that we are going into a season where we will discover and learn and wrestle with the reality that sending costs. And we've been in that season for four months. And whenever you go into that sending season, you send Pastor Brad, we send Torrin. Wasn't it good to see him on the stage today? Um, God is just blessing that ministry. We send Pastor Jordan. We've sent so many people. And then whenever you do that, there's always this wrestling in the church. There's always this shaking. Well, I'm praising God today that I believe that that sending season is over. And next week, it's, we enter into a receiving season. Next Sunday, our teaching pastor, the new teaching pastor, will be on the stage here giving the message. I'm praising God because I no longer have to carry this weight alone. I'm praising God because he is sending someone to us who is gifted, and not only to teach the word, but to fashion in us a, a strong passion for it. I would love to be able to tell you that person's name, but I can't at the moment out of respect to the church from which he's coming. If you know anything about Central, you know anything about me, I believe that before anything starts, something needs to end. And even in ministry, ministry is a call, it needs to end well. So I understand you all want to know who it is. Well, come next week and you'll find out. But I'm praising God. I'm praising God that one season is ending, a season where we all have to realize and pay the cost for sending. Sending costs. So these psalms are about praising God in every season. It begins with praise, it ends with praise. Thirdly, Psalm 147 calls us four times over to praise the Lord. 
Now, why? Why are these Psalms written in this way? Why are they written with such a crescendo? Why are they written to call God's people to praise? What is going on here? Well, have a look at Nehemiah chapter 12 and uh, verse 27, and you get the feeling. This is the background to Psalm 146 through 150. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived. Remember, that was the priestly tribe. And were brought back to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. That's the context. The context is the celebration that accompanied the rededication of the walls and the gates. We say that this is the context for a number of reasons. I'm just going to go into a few of them for you. Look at Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Psalm 147 verse 4 says, He determines the number of the stars and calls them each by name. It goes on, 8 and 9, he covers the sky with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. So we see here that a number, of, quite a lot of the language in Nehemiah is that the people start praising God is actually captured in these Psalms. There's another example when it comes to the statutes, the law, God's word. God's word is celebrated in this moment and we see it. In Psalm 147, in verses 16 through 18, he sends his word and melts them. That's the power of the word of God. Again, we see it in verse 19. He has revealed his word to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. So folks, this is the context. Psalm 147 seems to have been written to celebrate the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem. This is a reconstructionist psalm. Now, what's amazing with this for me is how quickly we read this. And yet the reality of this experience was not something that happened quickly. Here's what I mean. Nehemiah built the wall in an amazing 52 days. Unbelievable work. And yet, the restoration of the Jews to their homeland from exile then came Ezra, started to build a, rebuild a portion of the temple. Okay, the restoration of the Jews, the rebuilding of the temple, and then the rebuilding and the reconstruction of the walls actually took over 90 years to do. Over 90 years. See, what we read in a matter of seconds actually took nine decades. I wonder how many of you here are, are here this morning and, and you're frustrated. You may even be angry with God because you've just been waiting too long. There was such a, a cry of praise because these people had been waiting for 90 years for this to happen. And I'm telling you, friends, if you've been waiting 90 years for something, when the time comes to sing and to shout and to dance, you will. And I think that's the first application here. We're often in such a hurry that we get frustrated and discouraged when God delays. But what we read in a matter of seconds took 
decades. So this is the context of the psalm. It's a psalm written and sung by the people as they realized that the work of decades had finally been finished and they would begin their day with praise, they would end their day with praise, and this was a praise fest that would go on and on and on. That's the context. My journey to this psalm, and the reason I share it with you today, is because of really what I read in these verses. This is Psalm 147, verses two through six, and I want you to look at the words that I've underlined. These are all the verbs that describe what God does, but I want you to note how the action of God is described using verbs and professions that many of you hold. He builds up Jerusalem. There the people were constructing the walls, and God is said to do the work. He gathers the exile. When we think of gathers here, we we actually think of shepherds, don't we, gathering the sheep, but that's not the point. It's transportation. How many of you are in transportation? God is in the transportation business. And he was using his leaders to gather the people back from exile. He binds and he heals. He heals, he's a doctor. He binds the wounds, he's a nurse. He determines the number of stars and calls them by name. Our God is an accountant. He does math really well. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. God does his work through teachers. He is the best teacher there is and delights in imparting not just knowledge, but wisdom and understanding to his people. Then we read the Lord sustains the humble, but he casts the wicked. God is a judge. He's involved even in civic life. Now, why am I saying all of this? Those of you who've been in Central for any amount of time would have heard me say over and over again, the success or failure of a church will be determined not by how many people we seat, but by how many people we send. We are privileged to have a facility where lots of people can sit. But if we only focus on who sits, then what we are essentially doing is contributing to something that is nothing more than dead religion. Our legacy will begin and end with us unless God's people, who may consider themselves to be doing menial professions, recognize that God does his work when they do theirs. The future of the church, the power of the church, is not going to be in the person that stands on the stage, but the people who sit in the seat and leave committing to go as sent ones. That's the future of the church. And you've heard me say this over and over again, that the church has to transition itself from being a place that gathers to being a place which is commissioned to scatter. That's Jesus' MO. And the reality is that this message became even more burned on my heart earlier this year as I went to Southeast Asia. A number of you were praying for me and I appreciate that, but I went into Hong Kong, visited some businesses in there, and then went into China. Some of these cities in China 30 years ago were nothing. Now they are cities of 18 and 22 million people. 
To buy an apartment of seven, 800 square feet costs seven or $800,000. All in the southeast of China. One place we went into in China, we went into a, into a business there, and I could tell you the product, and many of you own the product, and it's made right there in Joe's factory. But as we went there, Joe, we were privileged to meet with Joe, and, and Joe shared lunch with us, and he said, well, I have a small company. And I said, Joe, how small is small? 12,000 employees. That's small. And as I started to dig into both business in China, and then the strategy in China, it got me on this journey to look at what the major issues are going to be over the next few decades. That's just the way I think. And, and I started to dig into certain realities. A reality, for example, is it is said that the global economy right now is $60 trillion, but they estimate that over the next 30 years, it will go from $60 trillion to $200 trillion. The battle right now in the world strategically is a battle for the $140 trillion that is going to grow in the economy. In addition to which, in Joe's factory, there were 12,000 people there. Many of them were earning about $700 a week before all of the bonuses. Many of those children were what you would call uh, growing up with what the Chinese government is calling the little emperor syndrome. That may not be a familiar term to you, but anybody who is at work with a millennial will quickly understand what I mean. No uh, dig here at millennials, but one of the key things when it comes to employment right now is how do we work with millennials and how do millennials with their attitudes actually work with the current workforce? China's got the same problem. You see, China introduced something called the one-child, one-family policy. And as a result of that, many people who work in Joe's company actually have no brothers and sisters. All they had at home were their mom and their dad and their grandparents on both sides. So this child working in a company never knew what it was like to actually have sibling rivalry. Imagine how glorious that must be, folks. <laughs> All they ever knew was what it was like to grow up with six parents and adults doting on you hand and foot. All they know what it's like is for you to be the kind of guarantor of your parents' and your grandparents' success. Many of the people who worked in that factory were actually coming from parts of China, not in the Eastern Corridor, but further north and further west. They would leave their family home, and they would go and work in this factory. They would live in the factory, and then they would basically use as little money as they could, and they would send a lot of money home. This is the way it was. But last year, China, or a couple of years ago, China changed their strategy. They changed it from one child per household to two children per household. So the Chinese population is now expected to grow from 1.4 to 2.2 billion, at least, over the next number of years. More than that, and this is where I'm going, folks, more than that, what they've decided to do is to reinstitute something called, uh, or, or to start something called the One Belt, One Road strategy. You all familiar with the Silk Road? If you read about the Silk Road, that was the old road that basically allowed the Asia to trade with Europe and into North Africa and into uh, the Holy Land. 
And what China are deciding to do strategically is to take a lot of the wealth from the Eastern Corridor and to shift it further west, rebuilding this Silk Road. They're calling it the One Belt, One Road strategy, which actually goes into Jerusalem, and then from Jerusalem, it'll go into North Africa and around into Europe. Why am I telling you all of this? Just at the end of last year, we had a missionary that we support that was going into one of these Eastern countries that would be affected by this, and this professional missionary was not allowed in. They refused him access. See, the day is coming and is already on us when professional Christians are no longer allowed in the parts of the world where the church needs to be. And if we can't go, then who will? The builders, the doctors, the nurses. It'll be the accountants, it'll be the managers. It'll be those of you with transferable job skills. Do you know that missions organizations are basically saying the church constantly talks about the need to get 2,000 people and to send 2,000 people into the most unreached parts of the world. And then the missions organizations will say, but do you not know we have 200 to 300,000 Christian business people already there? When are we going to wake up, they say, and realize that the future for the church is not in the professional Christian on the platform. The future and the power of the church is in the people in the pew. It's you. You are the church. You are the hands and feet of Jesus. The church is not a building. The church is not defined by the skill of the speaker on the stage. The future of the church in an emerging world that is going to rapidly change is actually all in our hands as we go out of here into our workplaces, and for some of you, you're in school, and school, you need to know, is your work. And your parents say amen to that, right? (laughs) The future of the church is in your hands. And the challenge of the church leaders is to create systems and structures that empower you to be the hands and feet of Jesus and free up your time and not ask you to spend your time meeting our needs, but actually to spend your time fulfilling his vision. That's the future of the church. It's in your work and in how you work. Now, I'm saying all of this, and I I recognize here a couple of things. Firstly, I recognize there are a number of you here. I'm talking about work. There are a number of you here that are unemployed. While the reality is that the country celebrates, what is it, 5.6% unemployment rate, that's not really accurate. If any of you are in here and you're looking for work and you've been looking for work for a considerable amount of time, you're not even considered unemployed. You're not even a statistic. If you're in here and you're looking for work and you have one hour of work that actually pays you 20 bucks a month or 20 bucks, uh, 20 bucks in a month, you're not even on that statistic. So basically, statistically speaking, then we have a lot of people in here who have no work. And as someone has said, work is about more than money. Work is about dignity. And the reality is 20% of churches in this country tackle food shortage. Less than 1% of churches actually tackle unemployment. Now we're blessed in Holland to have one of the most entrepreneurial, to live in one of the most entrepreneurial environments in the country. We have so many people that do this. I'm looking at Ray there, Cultivate Holland, that actually trains people, small businesses, to grow their business to such an extent that they can employ one person from Holland who hasn't got a job. But the reality is some of you haven't got work. 
And let me encourage you, if that's where you're at and you're listening to this message, just realize, reflect God in how you look for work and know that work will come. Secondly, I recognize some of you are overworked. You don't earn enough. You've got kids, so you work two, three jobs. And for you, the idea of using your time in work for God's kingdom is something that is just overwhelming because you're overwhelmed right now. As the Luzanne Covenant says that Micah referred to a couple of weeks ago, the battle moving forward is not for jobs. The battle moving forward is for good jobs. Good jobs. Thirdly, there's a need for balance. You workaholics must be loving this. Wow, it's okay for me to work really hard because God wants me in my work. No, guys. I think it's Brian Dyson is his name, the former CEO of uh, Coca-Cola. He basically gave a talk and he basically said, life is like juggling five balls. You have your work, you have your home, you have your family, you have your health, and then you have what you call your soul, your spirit. And he says, as you go through life, you quickly realize that the only one of these balls that is a rubber ball is work. All of the others are glass balls. When you drop them, they never bounce back. But with work, you can drop it and it will bounce back. Folks, there needs to be balance. I'm not saying here we need to be workaholics. I'm saying while we work, we need to reflect the work that God wants to do in the world. So with all of that in mind, I want to ask three questions. And I want to challenge you to pray for me, to pray for our leadership as we get to grips with what this looks like in a world that will be drastically different in the next 10 years. What this looks like in a world where we won't be able to send missionaries, but we may be able to send you. What this looks like in a a part of the world, Holland, where there are so many entrepreneurs who have the ability to take a good idea and to make it work. What will it look like to actually, out of Holland, start to take some of these ideas, and as the Silk Road starts to get reformed, we plant kingdom-minded businesses along that road all the way back to Jerusalem. What would it be like? But for all of that to happen, it basically means that we need to change our attitude to work, or we at least need to recognize what the biblical attitude to work needs to be. So I have three questions for you. The first question is this, very practically. Do you check out after clocking in? One of the great developments about the new Facebook, everybody, every time they update Facebook, people go nuts because they don't like it. But one of the great developments, or not so great developments, is you can actually watch a video as it kind of scrolls through, right, before you click on it. Have you seen that? Is this going to be interesting for me to watch or not? And then it does. Well, the other, it was a little while ago now, but there was a video that was on there, and it looked kind of normal, bland. There was a pastor at the front, a couple getting married, and there was a, you know, cameras at the back, and the congregation were there. But in the middle of the vows, a guy jumps up, and he goes, yes, yes, yes. And everybody kind of stunned. Everybody turns over to him, and he pulls out an earpiece, and it turns out that he had actually been watching the Auburn-Alabama game, and Auburn had just scored, and he forgot where he was. Haven't we all had times where we're physically in one place, but we're emotionally and spiritually somewhere else? Am I the only one to have done that? I think that most of the time this isn't a real problem, except maybe when you're at a wedding, (laughs) or when you're actually a child of God, 
who God has called to be in the place where he's placed you. And you're physically there, but you're not really there. See, too many of us have grown up with this idea that my faith is something that belongs in the church. And this is where we have to be careful. The freedom of religion in America is being redefined as a freedom of worship. And I've said this so many times. It is dangerous. Because it basically says you're free to believe and to behave how you want to within the confines of the four walls of your church. That's the freedom of worship. But this country never gave us a freedom of worship. It gave us a freedom of religion. And the idea here is that we are free to live out our faith in freedom without persecution outside the four walls of the church. Now, the problem, therefore, is that the government can just put out this idea of freedom of worship because too many of us grow up with the idea that my faith is in one box, one circle, and my work is in another one, and they never meet. I talked to someone the other day, high-powered attorney in a different state, and I just said, tell me, how does your faith interact with your work. And they looked at me and said, it does not. It cannot and it will not. I was horrified. That's not biblical. It is not possible to segregate your faith from your life. See, when you do that, you lose your identity as a child of God. Your faith then becomes something that is a crutch for you to lean on rather than, for you, rather than a power for you to live by. Many of you are familiar probably with the Jason Bourne movies. Jason Bourne is a secret agent who's basically out to discover who he really is. If you're the type of person who dissects and divorces rather your faith from your, from your work, then I want to suggest to you that you may not know who you really are and whose you truly are. And you will never be the force that you could be for the kingdom if that continues. This scripture is really important to us all. Colossians chapter three. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Whatever you do. You mums at home with your kids. Victor is away, college visits with my four sons. Do you see on Facebook she got a seven foot hammerhead shark? The fisherman said, wow, this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Do you want to spend 1,800 bucks and have this thing on your wall? And I'm like, hey, hon, I don't hunt. You're not doing that. <laughs> Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. So this week, I was kind of playing Mr. Mom. And yesterday, it was just the washing. It was the ironing. Well, I didn't do the ironing. Got to make sure I got it out of the dryer quickly, right? Uh, <laughs> but some of you, that, that's what you do. You specialize in raising kids. Whatever you do, look at it with all your heart. Why? Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward? Yeah, okay, but remember, the doctrine of rewards is always secondary to the doctrine of grace. Why? Because it is the Lord Christ you're serving. Folks, wherever God has placed you, just remember, it is Christ that you're serving. God does his work as you work. So don't check out after you've clocked in. Secondly, do you reflect God in your work? Some of you may be looking at this and thinking, Craig, do you know what I do? I actually collect cash in a parking lot. 
how, how on earth can I reflect God in my work when that's what I do? I'll bring you back to this. If you do any research in the number of professions, they try and categorize them. The, number, the, the most basic category, categorization I've found is that you can categorize work into seven professions. All seven of those professions are in that list. In other words, God does his work when you do yours. It doesn't matter what you do. Builders in construction. At the start of this building project that we're involved in, I went to the, some of the construction stuff and I just basically said, folks, I want you to know something. You're not building buildings. You are actually constructing space that God is going to use to transform broken people and help make them whole. Building. A friend of mine by the name of John is involved in lots of building pro projects all over the country and he made this comment about construction. His math's not very good, but I hope you get the point. <laughs> Construction is 50% showing up and 60% math. Now, I, I don't think that that's necessarily true. I can see a few people over here in, in construction. I'm sure Dwayne would disagree with this, but you get the point, right? It's about being there and being willing to do the hard work and the thought work into what God wants to do. And think about it, how much of life is actually about showing up? And how much of discipleship is what we would call this atrocious math of grace? Grace doesn't add up, does it? I deserve completely the opposite of what I've got. And my responsibility, just be in it, show up. You see, we show up, God adds the rest. And here's the, here's the question. Do you give God the chance in your work to actually show up? Do you give God the chance to even add to your life? And the fact is, if you divorce your faith from your work, that will never happen. One of the biggest barriers that we have to people understanding this is the divide that the organized church has put in between pastors, what you would call clergy and laity, that there's some kind of difference between me and you. Yeah, I have a different call, but that's it. The anointing is always for a task. I have an anointing for this task. You have an anointing for another task. My privilege is you make it possible for me to devote all of my life into doing this. That's the only difference. And Ephesians 4 basically tells me why. Because I'm supposed to spend my time equipping you for your time. That's it. Folks, do you reflect God in your work? And the, the next part of this is, do you reflect God in how you work? You see, there's one thing showing up and being fully present. It's another thing to accept the responsibility that you have to work. It's quite another thing to say that you actually do that work with the right attitude. I love the psalm. Have a look at this. God's pleasure it's not in the strength of the horse and the delight in the legs of the warrior. In other words, God's pleasure isn't in the one who's effective and gets the job done. That's not what God delights in. What does God delight in? God delights in those who fear him, those who put their hope in his unfailing love. How do you know if someone puts their hope in God? Well, we see it. We feel it. We sense it. How we do what we do according to Jesus, matters a great deal. 
It matters a great deal. How many of you are familiar with the film Groundhog Day? We celebrated Groundhog Day the other week. Uh, you know the story of the movie, Bill, uh, Bill Murray is basically this reporter whose attitude at work is just awful. And he is given this opportunity, right, to repeat the day over and over again until he gets it right. Take a look at his attitude at the start. Hands up, how many of you have ever taken that attitude into work or into life? It's really easy, isn't it? What's remarkable in this movie, as I've said, is that Bill Murray gets an opportunity to live the same day over and over again until he gets it right. And in order to get it right, he needs to see something. He needs to see that his life matters, that it actually counts for something. He needs to see the value in actually treating people with respect and reflecting attitudes that basically weren't his at the start of the movie. And you know what? It makes a world of difference. Just look at the next clip right at the end. The contrast is enormous, isn't it? Here's the thing, he gets an opportunity over and over again to live one day right. We get one opportunity to live every day right. That's our challenge. Now the good thing is the atrocious math of grace that means when we get it wrong, we have a God who's faithful and just to forgive us and help us put things right. But you know how we do what we do is really important for what God does. My encouragement to you folks is to realize how significant you are in the work that God wants to do in the world. For God's kingdom to break through, it is not about what happens on the stage. In reality, it is about what happens in your classrooms, in your homes, in your workplaces. So let me encourage you, don't check out after you've clocked in. Remember that when you do your work, God is actually doing his. And thirdly, remember that how you do what you do matters a great deal to those who look on you. And I really believe that as we, as God's people, try to connect every aspect of our life with our faith, we will truly understand what it means to be God's children, shaped, crafted in his image because he has prepared good works for us to do. What I've asked at this point in time is for our team to come back. Next Sunday night, we've got our worship night, and I'm a big believer in the fact that when we talk about contemporary music, what is contemporary to a church actually should be written out of or expressed out of what God is currently doing in the church. And so part of what we've been really focusing on is, is with our team saying, what is God saying to us as a church, and how should that be expressed in what we sing? And so this is a song, they're going to do the acoustic version of this called Kingdom Breakthrough that the team put together. And as you listen to these words, look at them and ask yourself, is God calling me 
to be a partaker in that? And I hope the answer you get is yes. And then I pray that as you understand that, that as these words go, you familiarize yourself with it, you will follow along and just say, God, let your kingdom break through through me. Thanks, guys. That's just the acoustic version. You can hear the full version uh, next week. And we'll be uh, joining here tomorrow, uh, next Sunday, rather, Sunday evening from 6 p.m. We'll be singing some new songs that God has just uh, laid on our team's heart and also some songs that you're all familiar with. So do join us next Sunday at 6. Again, next Sunday morning, our new teaching pastor will be teaching. I would like to be able to communicate something with you through the week, but quite honestly, that is in the hands of the church that he is leaving, and I want to make sure that we don't get in front of his just responsibility there to shepherd the congregation that he's at. So please understand that in that case, I'll always default to leaving well. Um, But do join us next Sunday. It is going to be a a great Sunday. Can I ask you to stand with us? We're just going to be dismissed into the reality that our work through this week is to reflect the work that God wants to do. And so, Father, I pray that our lives would not be anything but one with your calling and with your mission. Thank you for every person in this room. I thank you for the week that you're sending them into. And I pray that in Jesus' name, your spirit would anoint them for the task that you've given them to reflect your son, Jesus Christ, in this world. And Father, may they not check out after they've clocked in. May they reflect you in their work. And may we all reflect you in how we work. People of God, go in grace, go in peace. And may the empowering of the Holy Spirit go with you wherever you go. See you next week. Have a great week. God bless.